Hey guys, Jeff here from besttechie.com, and this is Techie Bytes episode 48. Today I'm speaking with Ash Karbashrushan, CEO at WatchMojo, one of the largest YouTube channels with more than 20 million subscribers. We discuss how Ash realized YouTube was the best platform for video, why listicles have such staying power, how to keep your audience fully engaged, and if he's concerned about brand safety on YouTube. Enjoy. This podcast is supported by Wix.com. With Wix, you can create your own professional website. Choose a template you love or start from scratch, drag and drop to customize anything, and use advanced design features like video backgrounds and image galleries. You can even add professional business solutions like an online store, booking system, or blog. I've personally tested and reviewed Wix on Best Techie and can say without a doubt that Wix is extremely easy to use and a great choice for both novice and advanced users. So go ahead, try it yourself. Go to Wix.com and create your own website today. That's Wix, W-I-X.com. I'm here with Ash Karbashrushan, uh, the CEO of WatchMojo, which is actually one of the largest YouTube channels. Uh, you guys have more than 20 million subscribers, I believe, at this point. And uh, Ash, you've been working on this for what, like 13 years now? 13 years full. This is our 14th year, correct. Wow. Well, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for, uh, thanks for asking me to come on. Yeah, and I think actually we're recording this on the day that Apple is also announcing some likely announcing some new video kind of service, right? So uh, before we get into anything, do you have any thoughts on that real quick? I think you've seen technology companies as well, you know, whether they're software, hardware, or the big internet platforms trying to move into content. And I think ultimately, like with many things, it boils down to how easy they are to let go and understand that some of the things that they've learned and skills and processes that they've kind of mastered to win at technology may not work. And it's that separation, right? So what's like the good from their traditional businesses, but what are the things that just they have to uh, understand and accept that are different with Hollywood in quotation marks? Mm -hmm. And I think when you look at a company like Netflix, uh, you know, Reed Hastings had the foresight when he called his company Netflix. You knew where it was going to go. It wasn't going to be DVDs in a red envelope. But bringing a guy like Ted Sarandos, right, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's the main issue for all of these companies. There's also rumors that YouTube and Google will get out of the super premium space. They're denying it right now today as we're talking. But, you know, I think ultimately uh, innovators dilemma happens for companies large and small when they want to enter a new field. So the jury's out on whether they will succeed from a build approach. I still think for somebody like Apple that's massive with a quarter trillion dollars of cash on their balance sheet, they, they, they will, I think ultimately they'll realize that if they want to be in this space, they will have to buy. Whether or not mm -hmm. that's buying a Netflix or not, I don't know, but they'll probably have to buy to really be effective in the space. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree. I think I think that's probably pretty spot on. I want to talk how about about how you got into this space. Sure. So 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 how did how did this how did this how did this happen? How did you decide to get into the content entertainment business? Sure. So I was your typical entrepreneur. I studied finance. I realized you know, I thought I wanted to do M and A banking. That wasn't going to happen. I landed in a digital. You know, I started working in tech at a startup. I realized I love startups but I was more into media than tech. Then I ended up working at an online men's magazine called Ask Men for five years. So I did some business duties and I did some, you know, a lot of writing as a columnist and I realized I loved content. I loved storytelling. So then I, I kind of got the, you know, the content media writing bug. And then from 2000 to 2005, wrote thousands of articles. And then when ultimately that company got acquired, I had a little bit of money and I was your quintessential entrepreneur not sure if I could be uh, successful starting my own business, but I was 27, just got married. <clears throat> you know, YouTube had registered its URL the very same month WatchMojo registered its URL. Obviously, very different trajectories, but just to kind of put it in context. And then it kind of was clear to me that, you know, having a non competition agreement that said I couldn't launch an online magazine, it kind of seemed natural that storytelling was moving to video. You had the emergence of these platforms. Uh, mobile had not yet kind of come and blown up the way it has since, but you could see where the world was going. So I said, you know what, 
I may not be the best storyteller, the best sales guy, the best marketer, the best at anything. I'm kind of a jack of all trades, master of none. But I think that there's an opportunity for me to pursue my passion around storytelling. And even though I'm not a videographer or video editor, I'm going to just you know, put my head down and build this. And then I kind of dove in thinking we were late to the party, but obviously realizing in hindsight that we were still very much you know, early in the game. Right. And just to set set the table here, this was like 2005, 2006, right? Correct. Yeah. So 2005 is when my old company got acquired. I actually gave it an honest, earnest attempt to find a gig for myself internally. But, you know, when a company gets acquired, a lot of the dynamics change and the writing was on the wall. It was time for me to, to move on. And so, yeah, that's when that's when we launched. And I think, you know, uh, in my third book, The Ten Year Overnight Success, it talks about Obviously, it's a story of persistence, a story of overcoming the odds. It tells the Watch Mojo story, but it's really a story. Uh, it's really more of like a media historian covering YouTube, web media, and and you know online video. And I kind of broke it down as how you know we were in the third wave of video producers, along with Revision Three, Next New Networks, all naively thinking that we could create video programming, put it on our own and operated, drive traffic to it, and you know build a business. The very first wave of producers were pre-NASDAQ.com, bubble bursting, pop.com, pseudo. The second wave was after the dot-com bubble burst, uh, mania, heavy. So they had to build everything. They had to build content, distribution, infrastructure, sales, way too many fronts to fight at once. They really had no, no chance because that's a lot of venture capital that goes into the business. So when we came along, you know, we, we also were naively trying to build our own distribution and realized that it would be about destination, not distribution. And then the, the year after when Lehman blew up and took the, almost took the economy down with it, uh, a lot changed. We kind of entered the nuclear winter of web video, and we survived, right? I mean, we kind of we 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 survived long enough to put ourselves in a position to thrive. Right? How so? so you you and YouTube, you, as you mentioned, registered your domains within the same month, I believe you just said, right? So, when when did you and and, and originally uh, you were thinking you were going to build your own infrastructure, build a destination that people would come to, and all that stuff. When did you realize that, that YouTube was the, the real opportunity? I mean, because there were other video sites at the time. I remember vividly that there were a ton of other video oh, sites. Oh, a ton. Like Gooba, <laughs> Rever, Metacafe, Daily Motion, many. Fiddler, yeah. Yeah, all Fiddler, no, this guy, yeah. I mean, you had E-bombs. You had a lot of – I mean, this was not new, right? It just depends. Everything is relative. So let's go back. So it's, it's December 2005. I'm in the car listening to a sports radio talk show on a channel that I used to, on a station that I used to produce radio shows for myself and they mentioned this YouTube channel and I was like the way they're describing it I was like either this company has the rights to everything or is like ground zero for piracy it's like the Napster of video so I went online and I typed various iterations of YouTube and I kind of was like oh I've seen this and and I was like, wow, um, this is interesting. This is either going to get shut down like Napster, or it's <laughs> just going to take off. And you know, being a business guy, you know, finance background, worked in media, I immediately start to research, and, and I realized, oh, I get it. This is really just UGC. Start to research about the DMCA, and then when I launched Watch Mojo, the reality is YouTube was one of the very first places that we uploaded, along with everywhere else, Rever, Daily Motion, and. You know, it's hindsight, obviously, I wouldn't call it a mistake, but, you know, we kind of viewed YouTube as a place videos go viral, so we created, like, a non-Watch Mojo account and uploaded videos to see if it goes viral. In hindsight, we should have just started an official Watch Mojo account, which we started the ensuing year, 2007. So, because I could see that their venture capital, from a business, there's a business and a consumer side to what, why I knew that it would take off, and I've been wrong on a few things, as everybody has, but with YouTube, I, I did have kind of visibility and, and just putting two and two together. The one thing on the business side was, whereas other platforms would be more conservative and when they would get like claims uh, around DMCA takedowns, they would kind of immediately do that and prevent videos from coming up, I could see that like with their backers at Sequoia being really aggressive and risk-taking, I think Sequoia was probably more willing to give YouTube a little bit of coverage and say, look, don't worry, uh, you know, we'll, we'll prop you up and won't pull the rug from underneath you when the when it gets hot in the kitchen there's something here for us to disrupt 
the irony being that the DMCA, the four safe harbors, have given companies like Yahoo, Google, YouTube, Facebook, and many others these safe harbors, this this kind of coverage where they could discover from fire where they could build their businesses uh, around content that they may not have the rights to. Right. So I knew that YouTube, unlike say Rever, Gooba, Daily Motion, Meta Cafe, who would all adopt various degrees of risk uh, tolerance for. Uh, pirated content that was user uploaded, I could just see that YouTube was putting pushing the envelope a lot more. So mm-hmm. on that front, I knew that like you know what, it's going to start with Lazy Sunday, it's going to start with MTV clips or Nickelodeon clips, which eventually Viacom sued them over. But I knew that they would just be this kind of clearinghouse for all video content like known to man, and that turned out to be pretty much correct. As a consumer. I would start myself spending a lot of time watching YouTube, but I would be like watching and listening to music on YouTube. You know, I was like, you know, I love Napster, so I was like, wow, all these old bootlegs and live performances, this is awesome, right? So I never got into that whole kind of influencer vlogger uh, subculture, and I could understand why that would be of appeal. But the way I think YouTube obviously emerged was people would go to see Lazy Sunday after they would watch Lazy Sunday. They would discover Smosh and anybody else who would be uploading content, and then they would kind of gravitate towards that. And then this whole generation was conditioned around that, and that's the content that we, uh, that younger audiences view as quality programming. And by virtue of not embracing YouTube, traditional media just kind of accelerated their demise, right? And it was kind of this big irony of it all. So then finally, uh, the third pillar and lane why I knew that YouTube was going to be the, the main uh, place to engage with audiences was we were uploading our videos to Dailymotion, YouTube, Rever, everywhere, including Yahoo, AOL, MSN. We were one of the first digital media producers on um, even Hulu. But I could see fundamentally that YouTube had a lot more traction. That's the only place where views were growing. The, the economics sucked, but to paraphrase Warren Buffett, who said, you don't know who's swimming naked till the tide goes down, my thinking was, hey, if the audience is legit, the economics will catch up. But if the audience is fabricated, then there's no economics. The economics will expose the fact that there are no uh, legitimate audience. So we started to progressively bet more and more on YouTube but we were always very much like, hey, we're also going to be on AOL. We're also going to be on MetaCafe until 2011. 2011 is when I kind of said, you know what? Enough's enough. Uh, you don't have this obligation to anyone other than your employees, uh, you know, and ultimately, eventually, your clients and your viewers. You don't have to put your content on AOL and MSN and all these places if there's no views. You can still do it. But you got to program for YouTube. And we started to program for YouTube. And we said we're going to get a lot more vertical. So instead of producing a beauty tip and a travel destination and an interview and a top 10 list, we kind of said, you know what? There's no money in it right now or maybe ever. So we might as well do what we're passionate about. And we like lists. We like lists on movies. We like lists on travel. We like lists on music. You know, we're the crazy people who will compare Hitler to Stalin and say which one was worse. We'll do top 10 ruthless dictators. And if we could inform and entertain and educate through a top 10 list, but create good content that audiences like, we'll do our job. And when we see like our content being used in classrooms, for example, we're like, hey, mission accomplished. And that's all ultimately because of YouTube. You know, so I I call Watch Mojo the house um, that YouTube builds. Yeah, I, I, man, I, I got started on YouTube not as early as you, uh, probably late 2007. And I, 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 like you, I was uploading to multiple sources as well. YouTube, Metacafe, Vi, uh, Rever, Vidler, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I, there, you know, I think the tool at the time that I used was uh, TubeMogul, which of has course, since been, yeah, yeah, since been acquired by Adobe. Um, and, and, and but I remember one of the early early videos that I watched on YouTube uh, was the gallon challenge where you know where yep. over over the course of an hour you had to drink a gallon of milk <laughs> and uh, oh. I think I still have that video favorited somewhere in my deep down in my favorites on YouTube and I sometimes I I, I, rem- I think about it and then I go watch it again and it's still there and it's just these kids who were like, who created this? I thought funny video uh, at, the, at the, you know, and it, you know the, the the quality of the video is not great, but the content was amusing and fun to watch because yeah, you know well, eventually they, they throw up uh, <laughs> and yeah. it's you know it's just it is it's just pretty funny. 
Um, so we're, we're, you mentioned lists, and I, I, I know you guys do a lot of lists now, but was that always kind of uh, your, you know, the, 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 your go-to? Was that like the original kind of plan, or did you kind of shift into these these top 10, top five lists that you guys create? The first video we ever shot in 2005 as like a, you know, beta was a top 10 list, which we did not publish because it would have looked horrible. And even going back to like, you know, high school and college, as much as I, I didn't like, you know, I'm not saying I was like a prolific essayist and I like writing essays and all. I always, whenever I had a chance, I liked the idea of a listicle because I felt, you know, fast forward to today, I may not watch top 10, sorry, I may not watch Beyonce's bio, but I'll watch Beyonce's top 10 list to figure out what it is. So it was more like we were doing that as well as everything else. And we saw that the data was good, but I never make decisions just based on data alone. And I, you know, I won't lie as an entrepreneur, you don't want to be pigeonhole and typecast. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but, but I did get to a point that I said, okay, you're more passionate about lists. You you like ranking stuff, and they do well. And you know, Ash, you're not an idiot. Like you see that somebody is going to own that eventually. You're not inventing it. You got Letterman, Wayne's World, Moses, and the Ten Commandments. This is a format that's worked throughout <laughs> humanity. So, you know, I think at 2012, I was sitting in Madison Square Park. I'd been turned down by yet another venture capitalist because they didn't really love content. Um, and maybe they didn't like me. And, you know, the, the point was, I was like, hey, everybody's also telling you that you got to focus more. Um, but focus is relative. So you may not want to become like a beauty publisher or like travel uh, producer. But I was totally fine to focus on lists and still zoom in a little bit on pop culture and entertainment. You know, because there's this thing of like, do you do things that you're passionate about? Do you do things you're good at? I think it's, it helps if you're passionate. I think. I think you derive the Certainly. passion out of something. You know, that's the thing. Like, it's true. If you're if you're passionate about stamp collecting, unless you're like the the number one guru of stamp collecting, it may be hard to build a business around that. But what I was really passionate about was just serving people. Like, our, one of our I would call it our statement of purpose is like here to serve, right? Whether I'm like cooking food, making drinks, entertaining people. So I really like the fact that audiences liked topics. They were fans of things, or they were curious about topics, and we could create really good videos. And the irony was that I was not a video producer. You know, I was just good at like recruiting people and encouraging people. And I was I was very good at writing and researching and packaging stuff. And I knew that like, hey, there's going to be a lot of, you know, I was actually good at forecasting that. That hey, if all these, you know, we we started talking about Apple, but I was like, if all this hardware and software and equipment starts to become cheaper, I said there is going to be this democratization of publishing. And even before the advent of iPhone on the scene, I was like, well, wait, like you're going to be able to just record a lot and there's going to be this whole generation that's going to be able to produce things that we, like I'm 41 now, I was 27 then, but I was like, we're, we take for granted and that's harder for us. So what we did was we kind of married, you know, professionally produced content with more of a user driven, tell us what you like and we'll produce it, but still around things that we were really good at. But when, for example, like I didn't grow up, I mean, I grew up playing video games and then I stopped. But like when I could see that, hey, people are passionate about gaming, my colleagues are passionate about gaming, I was more interested in like, how do you create great video game content that people would want to watch? Mm -hmm. um, and, and we succeeded at that, but you know, then the challenge becomes how do you keep going and evolving, et cetera, et cetera. Right, no, absolutely. And I think passion, like you said, is a huge part of it. Uh, to be able to, you know, to, to be able, it helps uh, you to be able to continue the fight when you're unsure, or as you, or as you mentioned, the focus is unclear. Um, and I, I, I totally agree that, that you know, lists, I think over the years have gotten, or listicles have gotten kind of a bad rep, and I think that's mostly in part from BuzzFeed, but I think from a from a video standpoint, they're they're probably never lost their popularity, and I think they're if anything, they're more popular now than ever before. Correct. I mean, look, the, the reality is, the internet just kind of like improved, accelerated, and um, you know, reformatted basically things that were always ultimately popular, and sure, it in it in it enable things that may not have been possible before. So this concept of a list, I mean, look, it's like a, that's a menu, right? I mean, everything has been in list format for a short attention time span. When you go into, into a restaurant, you don't hear the, the history of the cook. You're given five items on a piece of paper. It's a list, right? So I think, mm -hmm. I think you know, and, and also, look, it's easy to criticize BuzzFeed and Vice and, and, and Vox and all these big media companies. And some of the criticism is valid. Um, but, but I think you always have to drown out 
you know, the, the media sometimes or their haters. I forgot who said this, but like when the haters stop hating, that's when you should actually start to worry. I think 99, you know, one of the things I always repeat is I go, guys, this is not an MBA exercise. Like the audience mm -hmm. does not care. You know, like obviously the job of an analyst is to analyze, the media is to sit there and pontificate. The audience is really simple. They had a long day at work. You are their source of information or their source, source of entertainment. It's escapism. You know, if little Joey's at, at leaving school, he had a rough day, or you know, 30-year-old Joey leaves his work and he had a long day and his boss chewed him out, on his way, he's gonna go to YouTube and watch our videos. And he likes the fact that it's a list because he knows what he's gonna get. It starts at 10, it finishes at one. I think what we did is we always tried to avoid the clickbait. You know, like we may do top 10 ruthless dictators. That's not clickbait. You know exactly what you're gonna get. It's right, not like, right. top, you know, we're not gonna do top 10. It's not 10 like you throw in like Barack Obama in there. There you go. And, and it's not like we're gonna do like top 10 phallic objects that grow out of the ground when it's basically top 10 skyscrapers. That's what that list is. You know what you're gonna get, right? So mm -hmm. I think some of the criticism around clickbait or sensationalism works. Like, look, I hate these things that are like, oh, you'll never believe what this flight attendant did. And you're like, oh, I know this isn't what I'm gonna think it is. You click on it and it's just a pain in the butt that doesn't give you anything. It's empty calories and you're like, but, but I feel that's what this correction in the marketplace is doing. It's kind of flushing that out. It's yeah. kind of weeding out. So, so there's always a regression to the mean. You know, there's always this, I call it like the Studio 54 era. There's always the era of excess and debauchery. Uh, and then it, that's, you know, put back in the, the genies put back in the bottle and you get a bit more serene and uh, disciplined, you know, phase. Yeah. So I, I want to talk a little bit about some of the efficiencies that you guys have likely put in place because you guys put out content daily. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the first things I realized was you got to get people uh you got to hit them up every day otherwise they're not going to care about you so early on it was like always a video a day and you got to go back to like you know this new channel we launched is called context because i think context matters you get your perspective everything is relative right, right? so when I, i've started, been watching some of the videos on that channel actually i think oh, they're great yeah thank you thank <laughs> you um thank you that means a lot so you know when we launched it was actually like hey you had these things like content farms like demand media and associated content that were just churning out content trying to minimize the cost as if it was like you know some kind of like widget that they were building and i was like you know what i don't think that's going to work when it comes to cost low enough is good enough when it comes to you know production i think it's more about balance you got to balance quantity quality consistency frequency brand safety originality yada 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 so for us when everybody was trying to do a gazillion videos a day for a penny, we were like, no, we're going to do one or two videos a day. And sure, we might save five, ten bucks if we do this or that, but there's no need for it. So we were always like, kind of like, no, 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 we're not going to give into that temptation. I think today, if you fast forward, yeah, after 13 years, we've built a lot of efficiencies. We produce, you know, at one point we're producing, publishing eight videos a day on our core channel. Now I'd say it's more four or five. Um, and I think what was happening was our fans were asking for so many different topics and we wanted to make them happy. But it was using the restaurant analogy, we got to a point at the end of the year where we're like, look, if you go into a restaurant and there's 10 items, you're ordering one or two, uh, an appetizer and a main. But if we give 20 choices, people are still gonna pick one or two. So we're just wasting these bullets. Right, on... it's like going to the cheesecake factory. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Pretty much, yeah. So, so I think we, have also gone wide, like we've gone deeper and wider. We launched plays to go beyond top 10 lists to our gaming fans. We launched travels, we launched context, we went international. Espanol is pretty huge, you know, we have all these, we have 30 channels and all. So I think the reason why we succeeded is because there was no plan B. We were going to be a video company, we were gonna produce videos. It wasn't like we had a website, we published articles and then we said we'd do videos as well. Um, and so I think that's been key to our success. Yeah, I mean, because there have been a lot of companies in the media space that, that you know, you as you know, have done the pivot to video and pretty much failed spectacularly. The pivot to video does not work. It's like the scam. And the reason is, just forget that I'm in video. This is not like me trying to protect our turf or any of that nonsense. It's, if you are a writer, a journalist, if you grew up behind a typewriter and a keyboard and, and write, if you're a wordsmith, it's very unlikely that you're also a good editor and a good videographer. And in fact, if you are a very good camera person, you're probably not automatically a great editor as well, right? So 
And that's within the universe of video production. So there's this big fallacy that, oh, if you've been producing content, quotation marks, you could just shift from articles to videos, which makes no sense. And we recognize that. Um, and then that, that's on the production side. On the audience and distribution side, I got news for you. If I go all my life, and I'm aging myself, showing I'm 41, but let's say I grew <laughs> up, you know, when I was like in college studying business, if I read Business Week and Fortune, so I've been conditioned to get my business information in that format, I'm not gonna necessarily um, sit there and read, and uh, sorry, and watch those videos, right? So I think you have to be careful that there's an expertise side of the equation, but then there's a media consumption side of the business. And what I realized early on, and there's emails and presentations where I could point to back in 06 and 07, I said, audiences, you can almost segment them by content type. There are people who just at that point were kind of early adopters of video, and they would watch the videos, whether it was travel videos or, or health videos or music videos, they were just video consumers. And you had people who liked articles, right? So I think this was the big scam or you know mistake that proved fatal for many, where they had something that was good, they saw challenges because of Facebook, because of infinite supply, because of programmatic advertising, whatever like the tactical threat was, or the, the existential threat may have been, and they just said, well, we're gonna pivot to doing videos, which really made no sense. Right. No, I and I, I totally agree with you on, on that con the type the persona for for people who you know watch or view content. When I was doing a lot of video content um, during that time, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, uh, you know, one of the things that I that I made sure I did was when I would publish to YouTube, and then I would all I would also obviously embed it on the site. But in addition to that, I would also do a, like a complete write up because I realized early on yeah. some people like to read it and some people want to view it or some people do both but Absolutely. um yeah it, it, but it, but it was you know as a one-man shop it's uh it was a very very uh you know long uh process and and eventually uh between school and things that i was doing at the same time it was it was on it was really difficult to sustain um for me well you you alluded to context tv so context is just a big experiment we'll figure it out it's kind of you know you hear startups and vcs talk about product market fit so you know i start to kind of when i would talk to internal <coughs> sorry internal or external stakeholders i was like look think of the opportunities in terms of platform format fit we nailed the list format in a given style in a given uh format at a given time for youtube so context is like me looking at LinkedIn saying, hey, interesting audience platform, interest opportunity, how do we tackle that? So we're writing certain posts, we're producing videos, and I'm thinking that in a month or three months or 12 months, we'll kind of figure out. Right, and, and, yeah, I've noticed, and you're very active on LinkedIn. You do a lot of posts, at least one a day, I've noticed. Oh, no, no, many more. I mean, look, I, yeah, I, yeah. Wrote, I wrote probably thousands of articles from 2000 to 2005 while I wrote two books as well. Um, you know, I basically helped produce 20,000 videos. So I am quite prolific at, you know, storytelling and articles and writing, but it's more that this is a space that I'm covering in terms of digital media, entrepreneurship, web video, yeah. that I'm in covering, breathing every day. So all I'm doing now is just publishing some things that before I was talking about on podcasts or, um, you know, talking about in an internal meeting or writing a memo to a colleague or I could have an investor reach out and say, hey, we're interested in the business. And, you know, oftentimes one of the reasons I write a lot is because I find myself repeating things quite a bit. So, you know, look, don't get me wrong. Communication in person is best than, you know, over the phone, than email, although email trumps the other two in other scenarios. But the point of writing is because I'm using the same things in different settings, so to speak. Right, right. One of, the, one of the things I wanted to ask you was, so with your context TV series, uh, TV uh, channel that you're that you're doing, you're you actually appear in these videos, and you're yeah. and you're and you're like you're like the content creator. Uh, how how important is that? Do you think um, for you personally to be involved in, in that in that process? So entrepreneurs and you know athletes and execs are either starters or finishers. You, you might have heard that. And so <clears throat> I think even with Watch Mojo, if you go back to the earliest of videos, you'll find me in a lot of them. Mm -hmm. Not because I had any desire. Like I actually was doing a lot of 
things in front behind the camera producing radio TV I was doing a lot of stuff in addition to being an executive at my old job and I purposely said I want to build a media company you know you heard Roger Penske used to race cars and then he realized he didn't want to die so he kind of said I'm gonna get out of the car and build a company so I was like I don't want to build a, a company or brand that's like watch ash or ash mojo who the hell would watch that I was like I want to build a company that I could be as active or behind the scenes as I want to. So <clears throat> that was my goal. I did not want to be like a vlogger or influencer. I had zero desire. I had, didn't want to do that. But in order to kind of say, look, let's just keep our feet moving and not wait for others, <clears throat> you want to be in control of your destiny as an entrepreneur. With Watch Mojo, I did interviews. I did a lot of stuff. Uh, so if you fast forward a couple of years, I then went out and recruited a lot of people and was more in the background. What happened was, <clears throat> I loved the space of entrepreneurship and startups and business, and I, I was always looking for an excuse not to do it. But in the couple of years, um, let's say from 2015, 16 to now, as we start to expand, I would always hear colleagues and critics and fans and supporters say, <clears throat> you know, you really need to have some kind of editorial leadership, somebody who's really passionate about something. And so I was always like, you know what, you're making an excuse not to launch this thing called that is now context right and I was like start it off do it yourself because it's pretty clear that you're experimenting and want to get something out there to test and kind of figure out what the menu is going to be and then it'll be a lot easier for you to go out and recruit others the same way I did for watch mojo and be more in the background I could still be involved in the editorial and I could still do a video or a series or write a weekly but now on LinkedIn like yesterday was Sunday I still wrote like probably three four posts and these are not like a little post like these are like meaty enough because again it's just the world that I'm in right like mm -hmm. so when YouTube says we're getting out of the space I don't violate my confidentiality agreement with YouTube but I can explain why and point to things I wrote a week or a month ago saying why this would happen and so it's kind of like just figuring out and also it's it is therapeutic I want to give enough space like watch mojo at 13 years <clears throat> is established there are processes i can't walk in and be like hey guys let's start doing this random thing because they're like well look watch mojo is a plan a budget we have to execute it that takes time so context tv is also kind of a way for me to get out of the way of my team who runs mm -hmm. the day watch mojo right and i think that's a mistake a lot of entrepreneurs make is they recognize like you got to go and hire people you got to go and give the ball you know pass the ball but you got to give them time and space to execute whatever the, 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 the tactics are. So, you know, I recognize that, that as entrepreneurs, we're kind of crazy. So one way to get out of people's way is to have something that keeps you preoccupied, right? I mean, the whole concept of business, right. the whole concept of business, the term is busy. You know, it's like you're, you're doing something to stay busy and not lose your mind. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I want to shift gears a little bit. Still talking about YouTube, obviously. Uh, but there was there's been a lot over uh especially over the past few months i've, I've seen a lot of uh ish, you know people bringing up concerns with youtube about uh about pedophiles about content that isn't brand friendly and things like that uh how does that impact watch mojo in your opinion if at all i mean look uh, two things so watch let's start actually specific and then zoom out to a more g generic thing so watch mojo is as brand safe as you're going to get on youtube and this is not just me saying it because again i have vested interest when we have meetings with advertisers for example or distributors who license our content to put it on platforms other than, than youtube they will say outright like they're like wow watch mojo looks and feels like the same style as like our top 10 list could look like VH1 or MTV lists and countdowns. It's in a shorter format. It's edited in a style that's more for you know younger audiences, but it looks very much like cable programming, right? On travels, you look at our videos, like you're kind of watching a lighter version of the travel channel. So we are seen as brand safe. The most outrageous thing we will say is that like Batman is better than Superman and some people will lose their mind, right? But we're not right. out there like PewDiePie or Shane Dawson and all these people that most advertisers will not touch with a 10-foot pole, right? Now, if you look at YouTube now, things like even PewDiePie and all that are tame compared to you know, pedophilia or neo-Nazis using the platform or what happened in New Zealand, right? So mm -hmm. I think the fundamental 
mindset of Silicon Valley has always been, it's not something that we will be able to achieve perfection, zero error. We got to balance a certain confidence level and margin versus a margin of error that we're comfortable in. Meaning we will ship, if we're Intel, <clears throat> a million pro uh, semiconductors or chips or whatever. Or if we are Dell, we're going to ship a thousand computers today and we recognize that three of them are going to be lemons, total clunkers. And we'll issue, a, you know, we'll, we'll give a refund or if there's a big problem, we'll issue a refund, which, by the way, the Theranos story kind of highlighted why Silicon Valley may not want to be the people we trust to do everything. Because sometimes right. like with driverless cars, you don't really want a 2% margin of error because that's two deaths, right? So, so that's right. like a bigger question to have. But so <clears throat> my, my thinking is YouTube is, is not just like a TV channel, it's the television, you know, it's cable, it's the universe of content. You cannot expect YouTube to have zero, uh, you know, zero errors. Can YouTube do things to slide along that margin of error confidence level interval? Sure. But I think people then would get frustrated if a lot of their content gets blocked and uploaded because, oh, um, you know, my up video didn't get uploaded. Uh, you know, like here, this morning somebody tweeted at me along with YouTube, Tube Filter, many other things. YouTube is now, quote, I'm quote, reading this verbatim. YouTube okay. is now issuing strikes for thumbnails of kids, kids hugging dogs. Things are really breaking down at YouTube in a big way. So sad to see. <clears throat> My point is that is because, I don't know, if there's a machine learning filter that sees a dog and a kid, is it picking up bestiality and pedophilia? You know what I mean? And I'm not saying this yeah, to make yeah. light of it, but that's the trade-off, right? So if we, you want there to be zero pedophilia, which obviously we want as a society, zero right. bestiality, which obviously we want, I'm not saying shocking things, and you want this to be a user-generated platform where we democratize publishing, the trade-off, unfortunately, is that, yeah, that's gonna happen. Do you, know you worry I mean? at all, do you worry at all that that if brands are, are are weary of you advertising on YouTube, that though that that could impact your bottom line at all, or is that not really a concern? You'd have other deals in place. I mean, look, I think YouTube. There's always going to be a fire to put out du jour. You know, there's always going to be something, and I think today um, you're seeing two fundamentally uh, seismic kind of trends clashing. One is audiences have fully migrated online. Like it's, forget about it. Like it's not even a question anymore. You're seeing cord cutting, you're seeing audiences fall down. So the advertisers, we always said follow the audience and that's happening right now. So there's this need to just be more online and, and take more money from advertisers online. But you're also seeing that, hey, you know, it's like the kid that was eating glue when they're six, you don't worry about it. But that kid is a teenager now, and you don't want that kid to be telling everybody else in high school to eat glue, right? So right, right now, I like analogies, by the way. <laughs> and no, I've never, <laughs> I can I've tell. Never, and I've never <laughs> tasted glue. So right now, I think you're seeing these two forces. I think overall, fear is temporary. Greed is permanent. So they will address this within reason. I think if you are like, and not to question AT&T's decision to get on the sidelines, but I think if you are AT&T and you say, I'm going to take a stand here and not run ads on YouTube, I think fundamentally you're just going to hurt yourself because the audience you want to get them hooked on AT&T's phone plan is on YouTube. So they will always have to come around. But right, right now, the first time that they get an email saying, oh my God, shocking content on YouTube, yeah, they'll have to overreact, overshoot and take a principled stand. Let's talk about how how the how YouTubers have uh, have made a pretty big imprint on 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 traditional media and broadcasting, especially with uh, NBC choosing Lily Singh to replace Carson Daly on Late Night. Uh, is that a smart move for both of them, for both companies, or for, for both Lily and both parties. NBC? Yeah. I think for Lily, it's fantastic. I mean, I think it's that, again, tenure overnight success. A lot of people may be hearing of her for the first time, but there's a lot of hard work. There's a lot of creativity and there's a lot of, you know, just hustle to get to where she is. And it's being rewarded with the show, which I think is smart of her and her, uh, you know, agents and managers to recognize, hey, there's an opportunity. 
Um, I think, you know, realistically, I don't see big audiences flocking from her following on YouTube or elsewhere on TV. And I don't think this is what that is about if you're NBC. I think if you're NBC, let's be honest, it's 2019. So giving an opportunity to a person of color, Canadian, female, who is a member of the LGBTQ community is good. That's smart. We want more representation. So that's uh, and, and not just di representation, diversity for the sake of diversity, but like inclusion. Somebody said it's not just invite, it's not just being invited to the party, but being pulled onto the dance floor. And mm -hmm. I think you, know, you don't want diversity just for diversity's sake, but you do want you don't you know you want a little bit of variety in terms of point of views and, and whatnot. So that's good. But I think fundamentally, you heard about how Jimmy Fallon crossed 20 million subscribers, or Jimmy Kimmel, one or the other recently i think networks one realize of the jimmies, yeah. <laughs> one of the jimmies yeah i think they realize that there's a lot of value in being big on youtube and what better way than just to go out and pluck somebody like lily i don't think you know when, when discovery well first revision three so when revision three acquired phil defranco's company and discovery then bought this uh revision three and then that didn't work out as ideally for the parties i think it's really hard for these <clears throat> individual influencers personalities to be acquired or their companies to be acquired uh, because those guys and girls are not really conditioned to operate in corporate organizations that so, and also it's interesting because without them what what is it right they're funny. Like, well, exactly it's and that's what you that's what you were trying to get get away from when you started this company when you started watching Mojo. exactly and it wasn't just about the exit because we've had many chances to sell and we haven't uh it was more about just like you know, you you want to build something that has a, a longer shelf life than an individual, uh, and I recognize that. And again, maybe it's just when I'm at the airport and my then five-year-old was pushing my three-year-old, I want to be able to tell them, stop fighting without people <laughs> recording me and putting it on YouTube and saying I'm a bad dad. You know what I mean? So I like that anonymity <laughs> as well. Um, but so, so I think that it's just a sign of the times that this is a pretty low risk way for NBC to flex its muscle and be bigger on YouTube. It's no secret that these companies shot themselves in the foot and accelerated their irrelevance, uh, possible irrelevance and demise, possible, not saying it'll happen, by not embracing YouTube and creating this vacuum where all of a sudden kids are not watching SNL, they're watching Smosh. Kids are mm -hmm. not watching VH1, they're watching Watch Mojo. Kids are not watching whomever, and they're watching Lily Singh. So this is a good way of doing it. Yeah, I, I mean, honestly, I don't, I don't watch any of the late night shows anymore on TV. There you go. I'll just exactly. watch the clips on YouTube. <clears throat> exactly, and it's hard. You know, one of the reasons why Dave Letterman retired verbatim was he goes, "I couldn't make the clips go viral. He couldn't really, he couldn't, even though you think." And it's funny because we reached out to him and Worldwide Pants and his, his representation and said, "Hey, there's a partnership here." We're known for top tens, and it was kind of like that moved on, and he had retired. But long story short, you're not if you're NBC, CBS, ABC, Fox, any of those guys, Turner, you're not going to be able to just say, "Hey, I'm going to flip a switch and develop Corden into a YouTube." Even though Corden is super successful, but it's hard today to develop traditional talent. Mm -hmm. uh, you look at Jack Black; these are the exceptions to the rule, and the reason why these these guys have a hard time is because Hollywood remains risk averse. You know, there's, I talk every week to agents, managers, talent. They're like, hey, there's something there on YouTube, but what's the money situation like? I'm like, I got news for you. There may not be any money today or tomorrow or in a week. People wonder, they're like, how come Watch Mojo has 60, 70 employees, 100 including freelancers, and uh, you never raise venture capital. <clears throat> Sorry, you can deficit finance content and build a business around it. I'm like, if you go six years without paying yourself, you'd be surprised what happens next. There's a clickbaity title, you know? You gotta make the sacrifice, right? So I think that's created this void where Jack Black is like, you know what? I'm a gamer, I got my kids, I watch YouTube, why am I not doing this? Despite the advice of many people around him that are like, they should hold out and do this or that. But But so, I think Lily's saying you're going to see more of that. Uh, look, we have conversations with media companies that tell us, they're like, you know what, we can't go out and buy a YouTuber, but Watch Mojo as a brand fits really well with what we're trying to accomplish, make up time lost. Um, and then there's an issue of, okay, well, what does that look like? And are you going to kill this thing? Or are you going to help it grow? But so I think if you're Lily and if you're NBC, that makes a lot of sense. If it's not like it's a 130 slot, if nobody starts to watch, it's the 130 slot. 
and you get access to you know those videos that she was producing that previously she was putting on her channel well now she may be putting on you know the nbc channel so we'll see right. we'll see how that works out uh, last thing on, on that particular thing do you think that she could influence potential you know, the, the culture and the way that they kind of think about uh you know youtube and and and, and this type of they being nbc they yeah. being NBC. so I, I spent a lot of time talking you know unlike the youtubers i'm studied finance i love business i would say you know if i had to kind of describe you know there's there's a couple of things i'm based in montreal but you know i spent a lot of time in new york and more and more uh, la but i you know i basically built an american media company our, our main audience is in the u.s um and my background being business as much as you know people used to tell me early on they're like you're one of the few guys in the video space that can you know produce videos but also read a PL, a profit and loss statement an income statement so yep. i think I speak to a lot of execs and they kind of, you know, I, they're my shrink and I'm their shrink when we kind of compare our challenges <laughs> and whatnot. And they, they will say that, hey, it's not like my press predecessor didn't get video, didn't get the web, didn't get mobile. I'm 41. A lot of these guys are between 35 and 45. They themselves grew up online. They themselves have kids who are only online. It's not like they're you're speaking, you know, Chinese to them, as the saying goes. They get what's happening. And I think what they're seeing is, hey, let's say the guy's 35 or the exec is 40. He or she will say, when I started, I would go up to my boss and say, we need to think about digital. And, uh, you know, it was hard to get them to understand. I'm now in that position and I got to figure it out. This is my problem. I think the only difference is at the highest of levels, the CEO and at the biggest of companies like Warner, Time Warner, those guys a couple of years ago would look at digital, Vice, BuzzFeed, and say, we got to get some of that. We got to get in on that. And what's happened is with the rise of, because they were more on the offensive, a little bit of paranoia, how do we get better at digital? What's happened is with the emergence of Facebook and Google on the digital side and audiences, and then the rise of Netflix and Amazon on the content production side, they feel much more paranoid. So that's why they're thinking more of like Disney, let's buy Fox, et cetera, et cetera, or AT&T mm -hmm. buying Warner. But I think what you're going to see in a year or two is these two are going to blur. That, that, that desire to have the, the, the reach of the BuzzFeeds and digital um, will come back and those companies will be leaner, meaner. Uh, they'll have gotten over their Studio 54 phases and you're just going to see this continued consolidation but what, what changes is like what's on the menu, right? So there's always going to be a, a gobble or be gobble dynamic. It's just what's on the menu. What is it that people are chasing that actually changes? Right. All right. Last question before we get to the lightning round, which I'm really excited to do with you. So as you, as you mentioned it, uh, a few times uh, so far, you just turned 41. You've uh, been a long time entrepreneur and entrepreneur. Uh, what are... Give us, give us, give us like a list. Give us a top three, maybe some of the best lessons you can share with us. Sure. Um, I think <laughs> the, the number one is above everything else. Um, okay, let's actually start with three and go down to one. All right. Okay. So, I would say, and these are not necessarily top three, but these are a very good three. Three is um, the whole notion of the to quote again Warren Buffett institutional imperative you'll always going to see people getting in line to jump off the bridge to do what others do and i would say by and large that will always be the bad thing to do why one if everybody else is chasing let's say if fundamentally that was a really good idea if everybody else is chasing near-term profits it's economics 101 baby those profits yep. will evaporate two Nothing um, is going to be done really quickly. So whatever those people are chasing after, to quote Wayne Gretzky, you got to go to where the puck is going to be, not where the puck is. So yeah. one is don't follow the herd. When everybody's going right, at least look left before rushing to uh, the right. Two, <clears throat> I think one of my favorite things is this concept of balance, and that applies to many, many things. But I'm going to apply it to like the people equation. So the first one was more opportunity. The second one is more people. Um, and so balance is like, yeah, you know what? It's really good to empathize and put people at a profit. And you know, you don't know what people are going through, so you gotta kind of put yourself in their shoes. And that's really, really important. And I've stressed that all my life. 
But I sometimes also realize, and I don't like to admit this, but it's like somebody's got to do the yelling. Somebody's got to be that visionary. Somebody's got to want to go in the corner. Somebody's going to want to have to take the shot. Somebody's going to have to say the unpopular thing. Somebody's going to have to say, guys, that's a stupid idea. We're going to get killed. And, and you got to balance that, right? You don't want to get too soft and let's do things through alignment and consensus because then you're not really going to come up with anything bold or radical or game changer. And you got to be understanding that you could come up with an idea that you think is great, but it sucks and you got to let people. So I think we've lost that. You know, as a parent, we, we used to joke that like not every kid should get a medal because then they don't realize that life is unfair and you got to find a way to, to, to create opportunities and whatnot. So yeah. balance is, is like works in many, many ways. And, and you know, you don't want to go to one extreme to the other. And the number one is I would say this applies to sports, to entertainment, to the military, in history, throughout life. It boils down to persistence. So if you are an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur, if you're an executive, if you are thinking of doing anything, ask yourself, do you have the persistence to get in the trenches, step into the ring, get in the arena, because nothing will come in three months or three years. These things take time. Um, you know, there's other people competing. There are conditions are going to change. You know, I always say costs are bigger than you think and come up much faster than you expect. Yeah, that's that's 100% true. <laughs> Revenues are always lower than you thought and take yep. longer to come. But yes, absolutely. They will come if your gut was right and you execute, et cetera, et cetera. But so those are the three. One is don't follow the herd. Two, balance in many ways. And three, persistence. Nice. I, lo I like the three. I think that should be, if it isn't, it should be a Watch Mojo video. <laughs> it's, you know what? Guess what I'm posting right after saying I had a great chat on this podcast. Look out for it soon. And, you know, there you go. <laughs> that's what I mean. That I think some people, they, they look at it and they're like, wow, like Ash just is a machine. But I'm like, it's that goes back to not just passion and things, but you got to be able to. I hate the whole like, oh, I hacked this. I'm a hacker. I mean, okay, you made a grilled cheese sandwich and you found a good way of melting the cheese and not burning the toast. That's not a hack. You know, that's just like, you didn't <laughs> that's burn That's being a good cook. <laughs> that's it. You know? But, but I, you know, one of the reasons why to me context was just like a no brainer was this, this is a perfect example. You know, you could have a conversation on the spot, extract three things you've talked about all your life and there's a post and then it'll promote. It's, you gotta, you gotta think like that as a storyteller in the 21st century because Everybody's a everybody's a storyteller. So how do yeah. you break through? You you need advantages. You need to be smart. Nice. All right. So let's do the lightning round, which sure. of course is supported by Wix. You can create a professional website today at Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com. All right, Ash. Whenever you're ready, you let me know. We'll get started. I'm ready. Let's go. All right. Here we go. Who's your favorite YouTuber? But it has to be someone outside the Watch Mojo family. Of course, my <laughs> favorite YouTuber would be uh i would say i'm not as i said i didn't follow that much i do like phil defranco i think he has a Me certain too. I'm, I'm a big phil defranco yeah. fan i mean i don't I i've watched maybe like let's say he's done let's use 100 i've watched maybe two one percent of his videos but he's done it in a way that he's not annoying and i feel most youtubers are very binary you either like even if i disagree with them i'm like well, what's his take on something yeah 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 i feel the same way he has a very unique take uh he knows how to present it and and I think that you know the the fact that he gets his community so involved in 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 uh, what he does, I think you know is the ultimate um, you know win for him because it, it keeps everyone engaged and, and things like that. All right, number two, Batman or Superman? <laughs> oh lordy! Growing up, it was always Superman, Superman, Superman. But as I got older, there was something about Batman that drew me to to that side, the dark side. Yeah, I feel like for me, I'm I'm a Batman fan mostly because he's just a regular dude who's super rich and he has all these cool toys. Yeah, and what's funny is, very quickly, dun, 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 I will add that when we discussed the Matrix, Matrix is our meeting where we discuss things because it's a Matrix grid, not because of the Matrix movie. But at our Matrix meeting, the two most iconic like sessions where we had people almost fighting and killing each other, and I wish we had recorded it, was when we discussed <laughs> DC versus Marvel. Now, this is a few years ago. Yeah. And also Batman versus Superman. When we did the Batman versus Superman, I had goosebumps. I was like, this is why we started the company because we were discussing <laughs> these guys. And I'm like, yeah, when we were producing everything, when we were doing like top 10, not top 10, when we were doing like yoga tips or like how to make fondue, I'm like, we didn't have this passion. This is why we won. We started to cover, and we started to cover this world of fandom before it was hit. You know, like, 
you know, I'm not like a, there are shows I like far more than Big Bang Theory and I don't watch Big Bang Theory, but Big Bang Theory now is mainstream, that old geek culture. That's new, right? In the, in the, in the grand scheme of things. So we started to yeah. cover before it became so uh, mainstream. Nice. All right. Would you rather live a week in the future or relive a week in the past? Wow. That's a great question. <laughs> you know what? I love history. I absolutely love history. And I'm a big nostalgic guy, but I would love to be able to just get a glimpse of the future. Because then you're like, you know, uh, yeah, then you really, really, I feel, can focus on, you, you know, going back to the future, especially, and not to get all mushy here, if you've lost somebody, <laughs> I think it's the way to go. Like if you, let's say, you're like, oh, I wish I could go back and spend time and like, I never met my either of my grandparents, grandfathers. I could see that, but personally, uh, devoid of that, I would say that this notion of going into the future and catching a peak is really smart. I'd agree. I'd agree. Money or free time? Oh, time. Absolutely. I mean, that's a no-brainer. I know I hesitated, but my mind was elsewhere. Time, time, time. And I'll <laughs> tell you why. You could always make more money. You lose money, you make money. You could always, like, get... You know, I'm not even driven by objects. More like, I love travel. I like food. Those are my, my indulgences. But the one thing you, you'll never make up for is time. So absolutely. Yeah. No-brainer. Now, granted, that's a very Western, privileged... You know, uh, you know, for years, I was the company was insolvent. I had debt. I thought I, I was struggling to make payroll. So I've had my own shares of challenges, but obviously if you're living in a place and you're totally, you know, destitute, you're going to want more money. But, but I think fundamentally all factors being equal time, no, no, no doubt about it. Agree. I'm just curious it, real quick. So back then during that point in time of your life, would you have picked money or free time? No, I would have still picked time because okay. I felt that I needed, like the whole point of money was to get runway to build a business. Yep, yep. You know, I, I say the mistake or, or the, the area where a lot of startups executives mess up is when they put their list of problems, they think the solution for everything is money. And I said, we didn't have money, so we needed to really think of solutions. Yeah. Last one. Would you rather be able to read minds or teleport? Wow, again, that's a really good one. Uh, read mine. That's a new one to our list. That's I, I, that's the first, this is the first time I'm asking this one. Okay, so here's the thing. I mean, today, you know, hundreds of years ago, you wanted to go from New York to California. That was decades. You had kids, lost kids, you, you changed wives, and people didn't make it. <laughs> Nowadays, right. I feel, by and large, I'm, my mind's blown away that I can get on a plane at 8 a.m. and land, you know, Montreal local time and land at 11 a.m. local time in LA. So I think that's as great as it is. It's not as amazing. I feel as reading minds, um, okay. because you, you sometimes feel you could read the room and get a sense of what people are thinking, but just think of the number of missed opportunities, uh, fractured relationships that you misread, misinterpreted, misheard what somebody was saying. Like I talk a lot, but I listen a lot. I, I write a lot, but I read a lot. But but it's still your interpretation of things. So for that reason, I would say the reading the minds is probably the more valuable. Fair enough. Ash, it's been wonderful having you on. I really enjoyed the conversation. If anyone wants to get in touch with you after listening to this, what's the best way for them to do that? Honestly, uh, email. I, I don't mind sharing it. It's ash at watchmojo.com. If anybody wants to reach out to me, give me time to reply. It used to be really, really quick and just volume is off the chart. Twitter. Twitter is always very good. Follow me on LinkedIn. I, I don't want to be that guy who's like, follow me on LinkedIn, but I am spending a lot more energy on LinkedIn. And he I feel is. it's all I context. can vouch for that. Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> too much almost. I mean, it's more context, right? I mean, if you want to talk to me about something that's happening in sports or, or entertainment, Twitter maybe. If it's more business related, LinkedIn probably. And if there's something you want to reach out to me privately, email is best because then I could forward it to a colleague and uh, see if there's an opportunity to collaborate and whatnot. Awesome. Well, thanks for being on. I really, I really enjoyed it. My pleasure. Thank you for your time. This podcast is supported by Ahrefs. So you have a website and you want to rank better? Of course you do. Ahrefs is designed to be an amazing all-in-one SEO tool. In fact, I've been testing it and it lets me do things like generate millions of keyword ideas, discover new trending keywords every month, examine the ranking history of my site's individual pages, and even identify content gaps and opportunities. They also just launched the latest beta of their Keywords Explorer product. 
The new Keywords Explorer features clickstream data from 10 major data sources, including Google, YouTube, Amazon, Bing, and Yahoo. So now, when you start seeing even more best techie all over the web, you know who to thank. Go ahead, check them out at ahrefs.com. That's A-H-R-E-F-S.com. Oh, and feel free to tell them I sent you. Thanks for listening to Techie Bites. Stay tuned for more episodes every Tuesday with awesome interviews and conversations about technology and business. If you like what we're doing, please consider supporting the podcast at anchor.fm slash besttechie and or by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. Both ways help us greatly and are much appreciated. So thank you. Until next time, we'll see you. And remember, remember, take care of your computers.